Welcome to the Love Your Truth podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jen Chrisman, and for over a decade, I have been a licensed clinical psychologist, life coach, and on my own journey of personal and spiritual development. Each week, I'm going to be bringing you an inspiring guest or a thought that will help you move beyond fear and doubt to unlock your true potential because you know there is something inside of you that you want to express and a kind of life that you want to create. We're going to be talking about personal development, wellness, spirituality, and entrepreneurship. You'll get a blend of practical and spiritual advice as well as tangible actions you can apply to your life today. Are you ready? Let's get on to this week's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Love Your Truth podcast. And on today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Adi Jaffe, and this is such an awesome interview. I'm so excited for you guys to listen in because Adi is really changing the narrative around treating addiction, and we cover all of the areas. We talked about his own personal journey, uh, working through his own addiction. And we also talked about his professional development as a clinical psychologist and what it was like for him to navigate the different obstacles that he came up against and how it really helped shape the work that he's doing and his mission to help people overcome the shame that often accompanies healing from an addiction. And I'm so excited for you guys to listen into this episode. I know you are going to get as much out of it as I did, and I can't wait to hear what you think of it. I, like I said, I heard your, your interview that you did uh, with the Almost 30 Girls. Yeah. And I was just so inspired and so mm. um just like really blown away by your story. And so I'm hoping like what I'd love to do is to, to talk with you about, about your personal journey and what you've been through and how that has led you to doing the work that you're doing. Uh, Because the other thing that I love to do is I love to talk to, um, to healers Mm. who are, who are changing the, the paradigms, who are changing the narratives around what healing looks like. And you are obviously in a field that has been uh, monopolized really by, by one way of treatment. And, you know, is it working? Is it not working? Like it's hard to tell. Um, But so I want to definitely, I just want to like dive right in if we can. Let's do it. And, you know, just start with sharing some of your story, because again, like I said, it's just so powerful. Thank you. You know, I say this every once in a while when I talk about my story because, you know, we see ourselves and we've been there for the entire journey. And so it often doesn't look the way it does to other people. Uh, I write about it in the book. Where's my book? Um, I wrote a book called The Abstinence Myth that I will show you in a second because uh, I can't find a copy in front of me right now, but I'll grab one. And, um, I wrote it in the book that I get this response. I didn't even realize I was, I would ever get this response around the story when I first started sharing it because, you know, when people hear my story now, it fits into that hero's journey model 
um, you know, start out with challenges, overcome those challenges, fall down and, and pick yourself back up and then create massive change, right? It looks like that now. And I'll go into more specifics in the middle, but I'll, you know, when I started on this, the response I got very literally from mentors was to not share my story at all. And you're coming at this from the clinical standpoint. So I think this is a really important takeaway for me about doing this interview is I was literally told by advisors and mentors not to talk about my journey. Um, the idea was that if people knew what I'd been through, it would taint the way they look at my professional work. Literally somebody told me that, um, I don't want to name names cause it's not really relevant. And he was just doing the best that he could, but you know, we were writing academic papers together. I really looked up to this guy and he said to me once, if you share what happened to you in the past, people are going to start looking at what you do as if you're carrying a flag or you're, you're serving a purpose instead of being a peer researcher. And I understood what he was saying and he was also probably right. But I want to have a purpose. I want to carry a message. It is fully my responsibility then to make it a balanced message, to not drink my own Kool-Aid too much and to listen to outside views and all the other things that go along with being good at your job. But I absolutely have a purpose. And so initially for years, I was told, you know, be quiet about this because if you talk about it too much, you'll be pigeonholed. And I say that because the story didn't start out pretty. You know, I'm a, I have a PhD in psychology from UCLA, one of the top ranked programs in the world in psychology. I did well in that program, even though I did not do well in my undergrad career. But when I, I was a returning student, and so when I came back to school, and I'll talk about why in a moment, when I came back to school, I was all in, and I got a 4.0 when I went to Cal State Long Beach for my master's, and I think I ended up with a 391 or something at UCLA's PhD program. You know, I did well. I wasn't the best student, but I did well. And on the tail of all that was the fact that I was also a nine-time convicted felon, and you were definitely not supposed to talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't share that in my personal essay when I got into UCLA. I didn't talk about it in my interviews when I got into UCLA. I told this joke at the icebreaker in our um, orientation for the PhD program. They did, they did that game, Two Truths and a Lie. You know that game? So everybody's supposed to get up. And it's only 40 of us. Like They would only admit 30 or 40 people a year. So it's like 30, 40 people in a room. You get up, two truths and a lie. And my truth was that I'd been, one of the truths I said was that I'd been to jail and not as a visitor. Um, and nobody picked that. And that was my way of coming out a little bit because I didn't talk about the severity of what was going on. But from orientation on, I wanted, I wanted to be honest about who I am and not create some false pretense about my story. I was... Yeah, I was 25 when I went to, when I got arrested. So 26 when I got out, 27 when I got out of jail, 28. I was 29 going on 30 when I got into that PhD program. And a lot of the other people were in their early to mid 20s. And 
so I started the, the notion that I want to be honest about my process pretty early, even though, like I said, later on, a lot of people told me that was not a good idea. And I have a drug addiction history. Um, I was addicted to meth, but if I look back at my story, it started way before that. Meth was just the best solution I found at some later point in time. But it started like it did for so many kids with drinking in high school and then smoking weed. And it was a great escape from feeling like I didn't belong, like that people didn't like me, like I wasn't good enough, like I wasn't ever going to be enough for whatever it is that I wanted. And so I found ways to cover that up because the family I come from, the environment I grew up in, didn't include discussions about topics like this. So through no fault of anybody around me, I didn't know that you could even talk about that stuff. I took it all inside and I, and I hid from all of it. And I found ways to deal with it. And drinking and smoking weed were the ways to deal with it. And when I sank into a deeper depression because of a, a breakup, I tried Coke and ecstasy and hallucinogens and anything I could get my hands on really to not feel the way I felt. And my progression led to meth. And I was, I'd say hardcore addicted to meth for about three years when I was using all day, every day, you know, could not function without it. Um, and then I had my journey of getting arrested, spending time in jail, getting out, going to rehab, getting kicked out of rehab, getting myself into another rehab, spending a year trying to kind of navigate recovery in the most traditional AA 12 step sense. Nobody, there were no options. Nobody told me there were other ways to do this. Then going to jail, staying sober in jail, which is less simple than you think because people bring in drugs and they make alcohol in jail. Um, and which by the way, just speaks to the level of people's discomfort with their reality and need to escape. And when I got out, I, I was sober for another year, but I was, I was really trying to figure out what my course was. And that was when I decided to go to grad school. And I had no idea that I was going to end up here. There was, it's so easy to look back in hindsight and say, oh, well, look, you, you know, you made such great choices, but no choice along the way was clearly the right choice. Um, I was going to apply to medical school, but my family and I decided that would be a bad idea because how does a nine-time convicted felon get a license to practice medicine? And as much as I hate saying that out loud, it was probably a good decision because I would have either resented incredibly or have had dropped out of the process to get licensed once the MD route would have been completed. So it was a really dirty process along the way. And at every point in time, what I had to get really clear on was given what I understand about my life, given what I know that I've been through and given what the people around me in consult with my own ideas, think of the future direction I've, I've sorted out for myself. What is my next best action? And so that initially led to applying to grad schools because I didn't even know if I could get in and going to Cal State Long Beach and then doing everything I could to stay on probation and not end up going back in jail. So not relapsing, all the other stuff that went along with that. Then charting an entirely different recovery course. I'm not sober anymore, which freaks people out like crazy when I talk about the fact that I'm an ex-meth addict, but, you know, deal with it. It's been 12 years and it's going okay. Um, and so when I wrote the book, The Abstinence Myth, and when I started my program now, et cetera, and, and the podcast and all the stuff you're talking about, having seen, I wanted to speak out about my own experiences and what I found over time in order to give people permission to chart their own course. And as clinicians, we sit in front of individuals all day. 
and diagnoses are nice and it's nice to be able to categorize people roughly based on where they sit in the continuum of, uh, of well-being and mental well-being. But we know this and there's an internal voice for all of us that tells us that those labels are inadequate and they're shorthand, small approximations of the reality of the individuals we see in front of us. And I, I catch a lot of flack for it and I take a lot of shit for it on Facebook and Instagram and all these other social media platforms because my story is not common. Um, but I also get a lot of really nice letters from people who tell me that it's given them permission to move forward in the way that speaks to them. And so what I love about this opportunity is a way to give the clinicians permission to do the work that they know they're called to do, which is to help the person in front of you right there, not to help a schizophrenic, not to help somebody struggling with bipolar disorder, not to help somebody with a borderline personality disorder, but be able to take a step back, take your clinical know-how and your personal experience and figure out the correct amalgamation of everything you know in the world that will help the person that's in front of you right there. I, uh, I mean, my wheels are spinning. So I have so many different questions, so many different places that I, I want to, to go with you. I, I really do have so many questions, but I just want to like reemphasize exactly what you were just saying, because that really is, um, you know, the, the crux of my work and my, that it all comes from my own personal journey as well mm -hmm. in this field. Um, it's, it really is like, I'm continually like every day like, in shock almost at how um, narrow-minded and judgmental our field actually is that we are, you know, we're healers and we are coming in to, um, you know, to, to help better the lives of someone else. And yet the amount of ego and the amount of um, like pseudo intellectualism that mm -hmm. our our field sits on, and how judgmental we are of each other for challenging the status quo and for choosing to step out to for and I think especially when it comes to um, to getting bigger and mm -hmm. your journey, like a, stepping into your truth and sharing your story and sharing your journey, has probably opened you up to possibilities and to a world far beyond what most of our colleagues experience, right? Like well, you're really playing big. Like you're- well, I'll, I'll tell you this. So, I mean, my wheels are spinning a little bit, which is good. I love these conversations. So first of all, I think that part of the reason for that short-sightedness or for the narrow-mindedness, as you called it, um, is fear. And it's fear that we'll say something wrong. It's fear that we will overshare and look too vulnerable. It's fear that we won't get to play the expert to the people sitting in front of us because we, I worked hard for my PhD, right? I mean, I, I put about seven and a half years of work into it. I like the doctor moniker. Um, and I wanna, I wanna be in a position of power. And I think that speaks, I'm not saying this only personally, I think it's people deal with this and the concept is by oversharing, do I break some of that down so that people are, are going to take my advice less? And as a field, and I have a really personal story around this, as a field, I think the fear has held us back, as you pointed out, from expanding the potential of what the field can do. And 
I don't hold a clinical license. That's, that's not actually true. I have a, I'm a licensed um, advanced addiction counselor through KDAC. Um, but I didn't go for my clinical psychologist license. And it was a very personal, difficult decision to make. But I tried. And it took about a year to get the board to allow me to start collecting hours. And part of that was uh, being referred to the medical board in California and sitting for about a three hour interview. I have the DVD of it somewhere and I need to dig that thing up because even in that interview, they asked me the questions they knew how to ask. Like, how long have you been sober? What is your home group? Uh, Who is your sponsor? Now this is the medical board of California asking me who my sponsor is, right? and I told them, I don't have a sponsor. I don't go to 12-step meetings. Um, yeah, I had a meth addiction. I've been drug-free now for, at the time, this was 2010, I want to say. So I'd been drug-free for about six, seven years. I said, I drink socially, um, but I'm fine. I don't have any drug problems anymore. And they literally could not process that. It was like talking to a wall. I mean, I literally, I think I got asked the question, I'm going to try to say verbatim, but it was something along the lines of, so is your wife your sponsor? This is from the medical board, the psychological board of, of California. Um, you know, the dogma of the way we treat these issues has, it's penetrated so deeply that people are scared. I, I get the fear, right? They were afraid that they were going to let a meth addict into their midst and that that meth addict was now going to be a practicing psychologist and who knows what radical ideas that person would be able to uh, plant the seeds in the minds of, of patients. But what I told them is, look, I was on five years probation. I never failed a drug test once. Um, I, I paid my dues. I did my time. I, will, I had to get you letters and letters from people who know my work over the last decade almost at that point to say that I'm good. And so after all that entire process, they wanted to put me on a five-year probation period with random drug testing daily where I would have to call in if I ever wanted to leave the county and arrange for alternative drug testing procedures. And I did that. I did it for a year and a half. I was in grad school at Cal State Long Beach, and I would have to every morning before I think 9 a.m., I think I, was, I would call at 6 a.m. normally, see if I have to drug test that day. And if I did, that would throw your day off and, you know, you'd have to figure out how to fit that in because the labs, it's not like you can pee in any room. You got to go somewhere and pee. And what I realized a year into the process, a year out of five years, was that every morning when I would make that call, it would put me right back into that mindset of the ex-con. I was now back having to justify the way I lived my life. I was now back having to say to my girlfriend and then wife, um, well, let's, I don't know if I can travel to this place. Let me, I have to call my probation officer and, and she knew everything that happened to me. It wasn't like I was hiding it. I have to call my probation officer and make sure that the trip is okay. And I wasn't, I was not okay with having to make those sacrifices after working so hard to get to the other side of it. So I gave up the process. I let go of the probationary period and let that lapse. And, um, People leave some nasty comments sometimes because they go look at my record and they say that my probation was revoked and it's true, but it was revoked because I let it go. I didn't, I was not going to participate in that system. And the the reason I'm bringing this up as part of the story is I said this verbatim to the board once I said, 
aren't we supposed to be the group of people that helps other people fight their own shame and stigma? And you're coming at me after seven or eight years post paying all my dues, telling me I now have to jump back into this old reality in order to appease your needs. I'll do whatever you, you want me to do, but I need to respect myself in this process or I can't do the job that I needed to do or I don't want to be part of your club. Um, and I think as a field, we can do better. We can ask more of ourselves and expect more of our patients and our clients. If we give them permission, we know all the, we know the confirmation bias and the experimenter bias and the stereotype threat. We've learned all the stuff. Now we need to apply it in our own life with our own patients. You tell somebody they're a schizophrenic and you put a whole set of expectations on them. And I think, I think it's due time that we start expanding beyond those limitations in our, in our work and our expectations of ourselves. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. And I'm actually, in just side note, going through my own personal journey right now of you know, deciding whether or not I'm going to surrender my license. Um, just because, um, just because, like you said, I feel like, you know, this, like we've been saying that this, you know, we are in this field of, you know, helping other people to expand their own lives and to step up and to, um, you know, I just, I feel handcuffed by this mm -hmm. system that, um, I don't necessarily believe is in integrity and in alignment with the work and the, the work that I want to do for myself and for my clients that I work with. So. That's really interesting. Yeah, side note. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm very curious because you just brought up um, you just brought up shame and how it played a role in your professional development. But I'm also curious because I know that you know part, one of the the tenets of the work that you do is around this you know fuck shame motto. And I wear uh, it, I wear it right here. I love I wear it. it on my wrist all the time. And and I'm curious in your your healing and your recovery process, the role that shame played, not just in the using, but in the recovery and in the current dogma, the current paradigm that we tend to subscribe to and, and the work that you've done in moving away from the shame model. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, look, first of all, again, I don't think it's about the use at all. That's why this book is called The Absolutist Myth. We're looking at the wrong problem to solve and that's why we can't solve it um we're not solving addiction because we're not getting deep enough we're trying to put a band-aid on core deep struggles for people and we have co-opted the deeper tools we can use with people for a system that is helpful for some but is not even pseudo-professional and also allows for extreme levels of abuse within it. And we've just, we've just sort of let go of the reins and just said, well, you know, go to meetings. And, you know, people have tried to tell me that AA 12 steps or cognitive behavioral therapy and that, you know, um, that a lot of the tenants, a lot of the central ideas of psychology are ingrained in it. That's a very loose interpretation to me of what the 12 steps are. The 12 steps are a support group and everybody should have a support group. Uh, but when you go to a support group in a church 
And, you know, they tell you it can be spiritual, not religious, but you have to recite the Lord's Prayer. We have to be willing to accept that that is not a solution for everybody and not blame our patients and our clients for why they're resistant to it. And we have an entire industry in my, because my field, yes, it centers on shame, but it came in through the addiction door. And it's incredible. I mean, I was incredibly motivated to get help. And I'm not going to lie. I was motivated because I was looking at something like 15, 18 years in prison. So you could have told me I had to go clean toilets every day to stay out of prison and I would have done it. But I don't think that's the right system to create. We shouldn't have to wait for people to get that desperate to want to get help. And yet when people aren't willing to engage in our current system, we blame them for it. We tell them they're in denial or that they're narcissistic or um, that they're, they lack empathy and can't, you know, don't understand the impact they have on other people. They fucking understand it. Our, our clients are not stupid. Um, they're telling us loudly that they don't want to take the medicine we're giving them. And, you know, let's listen a little bit. Let's pay attention to what they're doing. And here's where shame comes into me. And here's where it came in in my journey. You know, I, my family went through some changes when I was uh, 14 years old. It started a little before that, but my, the first time that shame came in at all for me was early. I was like eight or nine years old. And I remember the concept of vanity and feeling like I'm not enough came in. And I don't remember why, but I remember distinctly staring at a mirror in my old bedroom that I shared with my sister in Israel and looking at the mirror. And I don't know why vanity was the thing that I decided to focus on, but saying in a very literal sense in my head, you're not cute enough or you're not good looking enough to make it just based on that. You have to find something more that you're good at. No idea what somebody said or what somebody did or what I read or what I was exposed to that made me think of that. But it, I remember that like it was yesterday. Fortunately in my whole life, I was told that I was really smart. And so I, I was able to rely on intelligence. Now, by the way, a lot of my clients don't even have something like that. They don't even have anything that other people have told them they're really good at. But I held on to that for a while. And then my family moved and I was smart and I was social and yeah, I rebelled a little bit right around the age of 13 or 14, but I was good. I fit into my social class and then we moved. And when we moved, I became an outsider. I didn't speak the language really as well as I wanted to. I didn't know anybody and I moved right into high school. I was really socially anxious because uh, I got embarrassed pretty terribly at my old school by asking a girl out who rejected me and then told all her friends. So this is before the age of social media even. But, you know, I don't know if anybody's had this experience, but showing up to school and being ridiculed by like 50 to 100 kids was really tough for a 13-year-old. And that caused me some social anxiety. And so I dealt with it in the ways that I knew how to, but I primarily ignored it and pretended like everything was okay. And so those little tidbits of shame crept in. And I, like I said, I don't come from a family that talked about these things, so I didn't have any way of dealing with it. As I continued rebelling and introducing alcohol and weed, my parents' version of who I was turned and they started speaking ill of me to me. I now became a loser and, a, and an idiot and I might as well go to get a job instead of going to college because I'm not going to get anywhere and what am I going to do with my life? And part of that was because my parents didn't know what else to do with me. I totally get it. But I started accepting those ideas. And by the time I graduated high school and went to college, I kind of thought of myself as a no good slacker who is going to fuck up the rest of his life and was pretty hopeless. 
And everything else that I did after that followed from that. Uh, I would get too drunk and not show up to classes. Um, I would not show up to tests. I would, I'd screwed up things constantly. And when I got arrested after the drug addiction and after all those were really attempts at fixing that underlying problem, right? I was trying to fix that, the core struggles with who I saw myself as being. And when I went to rehab, nobody addressed those. They actually gave me an extra label to be ashamed of. I was now an addict. They gave me this thing to slap on my, on my forehead. And so now not only was I a loser who was unmotivated, never going to do anything, but now I was a lifelong addict. And I carried it because I wanted to avoid prison, and it was the only choice given to me. So I, I stood with it for three years. And but it during, was, during that three years, sorry, I didn't interrupt. But no, please, during please. that three years, were you, um, were you participating in the traditional recovery? Were you AA, 12 steps? For the first two years, I did a lot of it. So for one year in rehab, we went every day. Every so day. You yeah. were in rehab for a full year. Uh, I was in re one rehab for three months, got kicked out of that one, and then in another sober living, actually, for eight months before I went to jail. Why, would, why did you get kicked out of the rehab? Uh, for using. You, okay, so you, I relapsed. So I relapsed about a month in. It took them about two more months to figure it out. And talk about shame, man. To be in rehab, facing 18 years in prison and using meth every day again um, was one of the most shameful periods I've ever spent in my life. I felt like the biggest fraud on the face of the earth. Um, and so, yeah, so I was in that for a year. There were no actual meetings in jail. So I didn't go to meetings in jail, but I was still very, I very much believed the same kind of concept that I was told while in jail. And then I went to meetings after I got out, still had my sponsor. And I went to something called the Pacific Group, which is a really devout, very dogmatic AA group. Um, and, and so, you know, all the stuff, don't call yourself an addict, call yourself an alcoholic, because all addicts are really alcoholics. All the, look, each one of these groups teaches you whatever the hell they have indoctrinated into their own version of it. And so that's fine as a support group. But bottom line is then I went to school and I started studying neuroscience and social psychology and abnormal psychology. And I started questioning the system. And even the notion of taking back control, even the notion of saying I might be different than what all these other people are talking about was really difficult. Because when you have shame, when you're stigmatized, when you are told you are other, Part of what you're told is you can't trust your own brain. Part of what you're told is that you're dysfunctional and will always be dysfunctional. And mm -hmm. fortunately, I had my parents to go to. And so for six months, I talked to my parents. I said, look, based on what I'm studying and based on my experiences, I don't think I'm one of those people they're talking about. I need to figure something else out. I don't know what it is, but we talked about it for a while. And here's you talked about shame. So let me kind of bring it back to that for a moment. Me feeling like I had permission to question what I was being told by itself allowed me to take back some of the control and the power. It's so disempowering and so defeatist to start believing that you can't trust what your brain is telling you. Um, look, I'm of the opinion that we all have things we can improve. But that doesn't mean we have to wholesale right off the messaging that is coming at us because 
our brain, our machine, as I call it, is it's trying to find its own, its own homeostatic ease. And we can help that a little bit biologically. And we can change our environment to fit it better. And we can reframe and we can um, reconsider and we can relearn old habits and beliefs and things like that to adjust. But in the end, what we get to do is play within a certain ballpark of who we are. And if we deny that too much, then we're going to end up miserable, no matter what good, how good it looks on the outside. And what happened, and I talk about this pretty openly when I do, I do this on uh, online free workshop for people around addiction. And, um, and if anybody wants to check it out for themselves or their clients, it's at ignitedrecovery.com and I'll send you the link. But from the outside, I was doing okay. I was more than two years sober, going on three years. I was in grad school. But waking up every morning and thinking that I'm powerless was killing me. Because I didn't actually feel powerless, but I had to get up and call myself an addict and admit. And the process just didn't work for me. And I'm not saying it shouldn't work for other people. It did not work for me. And I needed to be able to assert that somehow and take back control. And so I did that through a conversation with my parents. We made a decision that I was going to try the alcohol experiment that they scare you about so much. And I had my own journey about it. You can, people can listen to that story. But I tried a sip of alcohol and, and sat back and was wondering if I'm going to smoke meth again the next day or a week later. And I'm happy to report that was 12 years ago and I haven't smoked meth once since. Um, but I had to systematically unlearn and then relearn new ways of seeing myself. And the reason I carry the fuck shame piece is that comes out of my TEDx talk. When I fight back against the, I have ADHD also, but with OCD like tendencies as well. And, um, you know, based on my story, I'm an addict, I'm a classic addict. And my fuck shame piece is taking back the power that those labels were supposed to impose on me. And I look at it probably pretty close to daily because you asked about the process and the process is ongoing and never ends. When I get that feeling inside that something in me is wrong, not something I did is not okay, but something in me that I am not okay. I've learned that I have to share that. I have to speak about it. And if it's not to my wife, it has to be to a friend. It has to be to somebody close and open up that vulnerability because hiding from those fears and pretending like I'm okay when I'm not and trying to build this house of cards on top of insecurities is what led me down to a meth addiction. And I fight that every day. So I'm, I'm curious and I'm going to kind of just talk out loud for a second. So bear with me as I, as my thoughts kind of unfold Please. Um, in the moment. That's what I do all the time. Right. Um, because there's just so much here and there's so much to unpack. And, you know, I, and these are my personal belief systems. I, I, I really do believe in the power of the 12 steps, like working the 12 steps in their purest form. Like, I don't know that there's any of us who couldn't benefit from that. Um, from a spiritual perspective, I think that what happens is that oftentimes, you know, I think people, get in the way of, you know, and you hear it in the rooms. There's such a, um, you know, you hear like there's so many like sick people in the rooms of AA and, 
and those labels and how, you know, there's such a, that emphasis on the powerlessness, the emphasis on um, like, this is a a life sentence that you have. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like a lot of what happens is that people do walk away feeling disempowered, like you're, you're saying, but I'm curious that process of moving to a place where you can learn to trust your Mm -hmm. own thinking because you know again just going off all the sayings like your best thinking got you here right um and like how do you reconcile and how do you help the people who are struggling with addictions um who you know their their body their brain is working towards homeostasis but their homeostasis is locked into the addictive patterns Mm, i like that how do you help them create that um, that identification, that faith in a new way of thinking and a higher level of thinking. And you mentioned having the people in your life. It sounds like, you know, you're still reinforcing the emphasis on needing a support system and, and people to turn to, but you know, I guess like holding that space and creating, uh, you know, holding both the trusting yourself in your own experience, even when the addictive thoughts and addictive patterns have a grip versus trusting and leaning into other people yeah is that Um, making sense it does sorry i'm writing notes because i want to make sure i hit all these different points um look let's be clear so i think the 12 steps as a concept as a prince as a set of principles is great um but i also think that almost any system of self-improvement that allows somebody to rely on a process that they can apply systematically in a way that removes removes the usual sort of ups and downs of life from the equation or at least smooths them out a little bit to give you something to hang on to, an anchor to hang on to, so that when you're bad and when you're good and when you're in the middle, you have a system in place, a structure in place. I think that's wonderful anyway. Uh, what, what was beautiful about the 12 steps when they came about was talk about shame around alcoholism. There was no support for alcoholics, right? They felt isolated and because people who didn't understand their issues were the only ones giving them treatment and the treatments were locking them up until they sobered up and then either keeping them locked up or releasing them again. It was essentially no help. So the concept of getting a bunch of people who are struggling together to have a system that they can share is great, but everything is in the execution. Right. Um, And I tell people all the time, I'm not anti 12 step. I tell people all the time, though, make sure you find a group that speaks to you because you walk into a room full of ex-cons and what they need in terms of structure might be totally different than what you need. So regardless of the system, find something that speaks to you. And here are some of the issues. And I I wrote some of them. I, I don't think I wrote everything that you said, but let me know if I didn't speak to any of them. One of the things that I would like to I'd like for people to acknowledge more is even in the books of Alcoholics Anonymous, the we don't have a monopoly over help for people who struggle with alcohol is written verbatim. And yet I can't tell you how many people on a daily basis leave comments on my Facebook post saying there's only one solution and it's AA, go find a meeting right now. Those people themselves are not following the system that, that they a spouse, right? To believe in because 
that system would suggest, right, attraction rather than promotion. Literally what they're doing right there they are, is promoting a system that is telling them not to promote itself. So we have to, and the, the problem that I have with the 12-step world is the central office and the, and the bigger hierarchy of who is supposed to put 12-step principles into the world have shirked part of the responsibilities of making sure that it's done appropriately. And that has allowed abuses. So I hope one day those guys step up when men, women, not just guys, that that organization steps up and says, look, we do not go out and promote our own way of doing things. And, or, um, we don't have a monopoly on help. People should be able to seek whatever help they want. If AA doesn't work for you, here's some other resources, right? Like, I want us all to join forces, not feel like we have to be on separate camps. Because in the end, I believe firmly, I have a lot of friends that are 30, 40 years, 20 years sober in AA. I have nothing against them or what they're doing. Most of them also understand that there are a lot of other ways. Like I might be the first call that I get would be from them if a loved one is struggling and doesn't want to go to AA because they understand there need to be other solutions. So that's one thing is we need to take a responsibility for the training and the, and the application of the principles. Secondly, because the book was written almost 100 years ago now, I think there's some updates to language that have to happen, right? Like, it wasn't this big of a deal in the 30s, in the 1930s, but, you know, I don't believe in character defects. I don't think they're character defects. They're idiosyncratic differences between us. But, you know, I was a douchebag and an asshole when I was younger. Do not get me wrong. That wasn't a defect, there was nothing defective about me. I had completely wrong concepts of how to deal with other people and what my role in society should be. That's not a defect. A defect is like your car gets banged up. Um, that's a defect. You know, um, your, uh, your DNA being um, twisted inappropriately, causing you severe chromosomal abnormalities could be considered a defect. There's a lot of negative language that supports this long-term endless suffering version of what addiction is. And I, I think that can, that can be corrected to some extent. Um, you asked about empowerment. You know, I talk about this all the time. I think I actually just did a podcast episode that might drop this Friday um, on our Friday episode, which is the, reco the recovery version of Ignited uh, podcast. You know, the concept of powerlessness is really interesting to me because the first step is admitting you're powerless over alcohol. And yet here you are taking action on alcohol. You're sitting in a meeting, you're talking to a sponsor, you're going to work in the steps. So where exactly does the powerlessness start and end? Now, I make a distinction in the podcast I released about saying you're powerless is the opposite of saying you, you're all powerful. But there's a gray area in the middle you are not in full control of drinking. But if we're honest about it, we're not in full control of anything. Mm -hmm. I'm not in full control of how this interview goes. But I'm okay with it. I've made peace with that fact. And I go into every event in my life as best prepared as I can be and move forward using you know, my best thinking. Again, I firmly believe that even the hardest core alcoholic, I get people who are blackout drunks on a daily basis. Even the most hardcore alcoholic their best thinking got them there because the best thing, it was the best their thinking could get them there. And I'll give a really quick example if it's okay. Mm -hmm. I had a blackout, daily blackout drunk 
uh, join the Ignited Recovery online course. He had been to three treatments uh, episodes before, all of them pretty traditional, and he wanted to try something different, so he came to us. And um, we dug into the underlying core issues, which, by the way, in AA, you don't really do. I mean, even the fourth step is about addressing your own resentments Mm -hmm. And where you're holding on to shit. But look, people have real realities. This guy grew up as a gay boy in Texas in the 60s. And I've got news for you. Um, Being gay is not that easy now. And it was never easy in Texas. And in the 60s in Texas, you would probably get your ass kicked, if not completely ostracized and destroyed in your social circles. If you even intimated that there's the notion that you might find boys not disgusting so this guy did the only thing he could do to quiet the voices in his head and he started drinking more as soon as he started being aware of this and he could drink a lot so he kept drinking and at some point he realized he was gay and he left texas and he made peace personally with it but how to cope with the discomfort of that and how to come out to his own friends and all that he never resolved so to tell that guy that drinking is his problem is really short-sighted in my opinion, because drinking was not his problem. Making peace with the fact that he was a gay man, that is okay being a gay man, and that even though he grew up in a society that told him that being gay is pretty much, and again, I'm gonna be blunt because that's how I do what I do, but like being gay might even put you below the totem pole in the neighborhood in a rural Texas that he grew up in than being African-American, right? Like that's, that's how he felt like he was being judged as a kid and there was racism rampant there and he was below that right people were being lynched and he's below that and i'm gonna tell him that his problem is drinking his problem is not drinking his problem is coming to terms with who he is as a human being and so even the first you know the aa the only requirement is desire to stop drinking i don't think that should be the first requirement the first requirement should be to make your life better done if you want to improve your life you should be able to participate how you want that to look. Otherwise, why am I putting conditions on you getting better? You know, we talked about the field. I only got into this because I want to help people not go through the same crap that I went through. And I want to use whatever tools I can to make that happen. It would be wrong of me to tell people, I will help you only if you can do these other things for me. So, I put on here a lot of different things and, um, and, you know, I think support asking for support is partially around reducing shame, just walking in and telling a group of people that you need help by itself helps reduce shame. So any process that is useful to do that, to help make it easier for people to admit they need help without conditions, without presuppositions of what that needs to look like for them, but rather literally reaching your hand and saying, Hey, you said you need help. I'm here to offer it. What can I do for you? That's the way that I could see our field in general shifting a little bit. So I am, I want, I mean, I feel like we are just starting to scratch the surface here. <laughs> I'm, and I'm looking at the time and I'm, I know we have a hard stop. Um, and so I'm, I want to kind of just shift us just a little bit for one more like kind of big question that I want to ask you, because what I'm noticing, um, you are, I I mean, I would say like you're kind of a pioneer in a few ways, in many ways, um, as far as breaking the mold of what's being traditionally done. Um, and 
you know, you went through this in your professional development going through UCLA. I, I did my undergrad in psychology at UCLA. I know, oh, this, nice. I know the school. Um, I know, I, I know what you're talking about as far as, you know, the people that you're working with and like really breaking the mold, really challenging what everybody else is doing and what everyone else is telling you to do. And I imagine, like you said, you're coming up against a tremendous amount of slack and judgment and negative opinions about sharing your story, not getting your license, doing it differently. And now here you are like really challenging the status quo, really challenging what's being done. And I'm curious on a personal level, the work that you did and what you would attribute to like how you are able to live in your truth. I mean, this, my podcast is called love your truth. It's really about, you know, how do we honor all of those parts of ourselves? And, you know, like you said, the like letting go of character defects that, you know, it's not that we are defective. I think our work is actually the opposite. It's that we've ignored and we've shamed and we've shunned these parts of ourselves that we have decided are not good enough. Yeah. Um, and the healing happens when we bring them in. But I'm, I'm really curious for you, like what has happened for you? What has allowed you to be able to stand in your own light, in your own truth, even though you are putting yourself in a position to really be ridiculed. And I imagine you probably are bombarded, like you were saying, with those negative comments on Facebook and yeah. the judgments. So first of all, I want to give credit to the people who came before me because um, the first person that I heard of making these sort of statements was Stanton Peel, which I don't know how many people are familiar with his work. But he is really outspoken. We, we brought him to speak at a treatment center I used to run, and he berated the audience. He's far more outspoken than I am. Um, but he wrote his first book called Love and Addiction the year I was born. So I want to give credit there. And then there's Alan Marlat, who's passed. But I was, I was learning about his mindfulness-based relapse prevention work and very harm reduction sort of approaches to drinking at the University of Washington. He passed before I was ever, ever able to meet him. Uh, then there's Andrew Tatarski in New York doing this sort of work. I partnered with a guy named Mark Kern, who was my partner here for about five years in the treatment center we ran. There's Dee Dee Stout and Pat Denning in San Francisco. There are a lot of people who came before me. I feel like in this generation, the generation after those people I just named, I'm one of the people who's doing this. And the difference, I think, is I just became more outspoken. So kind of what Stanton was doing 30 years ago, I decided that in order to really help, look, 90% of people for addiction are not getting help. Um, of the 10% who are getting help, somewhere between 5 and 15% are getting help. That means we're helping 1% of the people with a problem. The time for soft gloves, diplomatic speaking is fucking past. It's over. 170,000 people or so are dying every year. It's done. I don't care what people think about me. I care a lot more about the stories of the people who write to me after reading the book or sharing the book with a loved one or doing the course or listening to the podcast and tell me it's made a difference in their life. I'm way, I used to say if I can help one person find the path and um, that they wouldn't have found otherwise, I'd be okay. I'm way past that, right? So we're now in the thousands and I've served that uh, time and time again. My goal is to help 1 million people um, deal with their addictions. And so it was not an easy it was not an easy journey though to ignore the naysayers. Uh, my wife will tell you I would get a negative Facebook comment and I would 
sit there and try to bring the person to my side for a while. And it would knock me out for three days at the beginning. Um, and so I think it was a confluence of a couple of factors. First of all, the level of testimonials and emails and messages that I was getting from people who have helped increased. My skin got thicker and thicker at the same time around those comments. And I learned other techniques to deal with it, right? Like we all have imposter syndrome that comes up for us. And the only reason I would let other people's comments bother me is because to some extent they fed into my own internal shame of what if they're right? What if I'm really a con artist? What if I'm really not doing this for people's well-being? And just like I do with my clients, you know, reframing and reality testing, man. Um, okay, let me, let me look at this, right? I've been doing this work now for a year. Like Ignited has made me about $25,000 in the last year. Profit, right? Like amount of money I paid into my own bank account. I could do better getting a job tomorrow teaching at Santa Monica College uh, and have a lot less work to do. So it's not the money. So that's not it. So when people talk shit to me about how I'm only doing this for the money, I've been able to let that go because I'm not making any money. So you can't even tell me it's about the money. And then it would be like, you're conning people and you're giving people too easy of a solution, et cetera. Well, people are telling me this helps. So it would be this, I would have to do my own work on myself as I am with other people and, and use the tools that I recommend to others. So there are tools that I use on a daily basis. I can share some of them. Like, I believe in confirmation bias and the fact that you have to feed your brain what you want it to be able to feed you the rest of the day. So I use something called the five minute journal. Um, it's just a little gratitude plus what am I expecting of the day to be great and a little positive affirmation for myself daily that I start every day with that so that I can get centered on what I want my day to look at. Um, I do a lot of work on my own self care so that I'm taking care of myself so I can help other people. And I work with, consult with, talk with my support network on a regular basis so that I can understand. I just had a meeting yesterday, for instance, with a friend who does branding and marketing because I was confused. And I was thinking maybe I'm not doing the right thing. And, and find people just like, look, just like people with addiction problems or people with schizophrenia or people with bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder, just like those people need others who understand what they're going through. We need support. So find that support, whether that's a consultation group, whether that's an old mentor you can check in with, whether it's less official than that, find something you can rely on. I don't remember who said this, but it's been said many times by many different people. Uh, but I don't remember the last quote that I saw it on. If you're not making some people angry, you're not making a difference. Mm -hmm. So stop trying to, make everybody happy. Stop trying to somehow be so diplomatic that nobody's going to be offended by what it is that you want to do. If you have a, go back to the beginning of how we started this. If you have a flag, if you have a message that you're trying to get across, be informed. Somebody just sent us an email saying that they were really excited that when they read my articles, I give both sides of the story. I don't only push my message. I give some opposing research that shows the, do your due diligence, do the work, show up the best you can for your clients, for yourself, for your colleagues, but then also believe in what you're doing enough to take the heat. Because if you can't do that, then I would go back and reconsider whether the purpose you're going after is really what you're passionate about, or if you're just trying to appease everybody and look really good to everybody else. 
I, I love that so much. I, I'm so incredibly grateful for this time with you. And like I said, I really feel like we are just scratching the surface. And I, Let's do it again. right? Can we please? Yeah, I, want, please. <laughs> I want to send Maddie the, the link again and get you scheduled because I think that, you know, what you are doing is just, it's so important. And I, you know, I, I just, I love people who are breaking the mold. I love hearing, um, you know, I'm just, I'm always so inspired by people who are passionate about changing the world and that's really what you're doing. And so I'm grateful for you. I want to just take this time to acknowledge you and the work that you're doing, your courage in sharing your story, because it's really powerful. And I personally am inspired by it. And I know millions will be too. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for Thank you. taking the bandwidth and the time to pay attention to this. Thank you guys so much for spending this time with me on the Love Your Truth podcast. I am really just so happy that you stopped by. And I would at this point just love to ask for your help in spreading the message and maybe sharing this episode with someone that you think would love it or benefit from it. And also, if you could head over to iTunes, if you feel so moved to do so, and leave an honest comment and review for us, that would really help me out with this journey to helping thousands and thousands of people. And until next time, please don't forget to love your truth. Thanks, guys.